So as I mentioned, this is Earth Care Week. A few years ago at an international Buddhist meditation teacher meeting, a whole group of us, all of us, agreed that every October, the first week of October would be Earth Care Week, which means we spend all our Dharma talks and workshops and daylongs, et cetera, focusing on either our love for the world or of focusing on facing and responding to the crisis in the environment as Dharma. So that is uh, why we have this evening and we have uh, Joanna Macy, who's probably the most uh, qualified person on the planet to teach. Um, Don't say that. <laughs> well, to teach this, how to, how to use facing and responding to the cries of the earth as Dharma. Wouldn't you say you're qualified to teach that? Well, I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, all right, good. Well, it's only been 50 what years that she's been giving her whole life to this. So we're really fortunate, really, really grateful to have Joanna here. Um, Joanna has been teaching and pioneering and leading in the fields <laughs> of um, environmental activism <laughs> and peace and social justice, engaged Buddhism for 50 some years, I don't know, 55, some, it's a long time. And um, she's a Buddhist scholar, she's an author of eight books. Next month, the Naropa uh, University is dedicating the Joanna Macy Center, um, and she'll be there for that dedication, will be a center to make sure that we have collected and archived this extraordinary body of work and to ensure that that keeps being going on long after Joanne is here. And there are other groups, one of which I'm part of, who are also doing projects like this because what she's offering is, I believe, so very important to the world. So um, just, I could say so much about Joanna, but I think the one thing I wanna say tonight is that she has not, been afraid to face some of the most intractable and frightening issues of our time, like what do we do with nuclear waste? So she, the thing nobody wants to even look at, you know, because there's not much you can do with nuclear waste, right? But she's been working and studying for years and years to, to look at that impossible question, or not impossible, that difficult question. Um, like the question, um, what do we do with millions of well-meaning people like us who can sometimes feel completely numb and frozen and overwhelmed when we hear the actual facts of what's happening to the earth? So Joanna doesn't turn away from that question. She has spent these decades innovating um, these incredible set of creative methodologies that help students move from uh, apathy and fear and despair into collaborative action. And as far as I'm concerned, that movement right there is one of the most important things we need right now on Earth. It's just millions and millions of us moving into action. Um, 
she's, um, it might sound like it's heavy, you know, it's, it, these are heavy topics and she's not afraid of grief and she's not afraid of anger and all that. But I just want to say, as I finish this in, uh, introduction, is that Joanna is fun. <laughs> she, she's playful. She's joyful. And I think that's important for us to know that you can give your whole life facing the darkest things on earth and be so filled with joy. So that is inspiring and empowering. And with that, I will. <laughs> I feel as if I should do a little dance or something. <laughs> yeah. This is really very serious tonight. Okay. Hello, everybody. I'm so glad to be here. So tonight, I want to uh, walk around with reflections and stories around a central image. And it's one that I know is familiar uh, to many of you, although it comes from Mahayana Buddhism. It comes from a school of uh, called the Huayan Buddhism, where the uh, Buddha's central doctrine of Paticca Samuppada, which is dependent co-arising, the radical interdependence of all phenomena, all phenomena, spiritual, mental, every, uh, physical, organic, uh, radically interconnected. And um, everything else he talked, you know, about Self and thought is, is his uh, subtle and elegant psychology, uh, his uh, basic Dharma message was simply uh, again and again different ways of understanding a view of reality that was not a hierarchical where you escape from the suffering world, the broken world, the, uh, and ascend to a place of unity, illumination, just, ah. And so, <laughs> uh, but the very centrality of this, and it was represented in the wheel, wasn't it? And, um, those other, it was represented in the tree, that uh, represented in the, uh, I'm thinking of the four symbols of his life, which were elephant, that was his birth, out the side of his mama, I don't know, she conceived with the dream of the elephant. Elephant, and then his enlightenment, the tree, and uh, his preaching and teaching, the wheel, and then the stupa for his death. Yeah. So he's just a, a, a mortal like us, not an ordinary mortal particularly, but none of us is just an ordinary mortal. Mortals don't come in generic, everyone's distinctive. <laughs> and so he was pretty distinctive. And, but it was not, it was, isn't it wonderful that he was just a person? And at uh, any rate, so this image, uh, uh, echoes the basic insight of the Buddha of this uh, radical interdependence, uh, reciprocally related. 
like a great reciprocity at the heart of the universe. And that image is the jewel net of Indra. And it appeared, in, as I told you, in, in uh, around between the 4th and 8th century AD and Common Era. This image, so let's just enjoy it. Indra, who's he? Well, he was, I don't know why they chose Indra for having made this, except he was from the Indian pantheon, and he was both omnipotent and clever, which doesn't always go together, <laughs> as we are seeing. <laughs> and so he's created this uh, net that goes in all directions and dimensions. You can imagine a kind of fish net. And then at every node of the net, there's a jewel. And there you see them all, glinting and gleaming. And, and they're going, see, there's not a hierarchy there. There's a vastness there. And there's also a relatedness. How come? Well, if you look at one, so let's look at one jewel or pearl, sometimes they're called. Now, we won't say pearl because you don't cut facets in a pearl that I know about. Uh, so you look at one of them and you see that it is got many, 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 many facets. And they're all like that. So what does that mean? That means that they are reflecting off each other. And you look at this one, and then you see reflections from all the others. And not only that, but you see the reflections of them reflecting you. So that there's this incredible mutual uh, inter activity, interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it. Now that's become very popular because it's uh, incredibly close to a way you could portray our um, holotropic vision of reality that you get with some modern scientists like Carl Prebrum and a number of others. And uh, thinking of Stan Groff, for example, whose, re whose experiments with uh, mind-altering substances around uh, the primal uh, experience of life of birth, he was trying to get back to see how what we remember of that, how that influenced our whole life. And he could uh, find through that coming into consciousness through first uh, mind-altering substances, LSD, and then um, high, uh, breathing, uh, that there were memories coming that couldn't be identified with your biography, that were beyond what one could trace of what you'd know in this bag of skin in this lifetime. It's as if you look into one of us and the whole world is there. So that's an, uh, uh, something that's becoming more 
familiar to the uh, exploratory modern mind or postmodern mind. So the first story I want to tell is about how I uh, it was it was um, about thirty six years ago, which means I was just fifty. <laughs> See if you can add. That's going to be very hard for you to add up to figure out how old I am. <laughs> um, and I was in Sri Lanka, and I had gone there. Uh, my youngest had left, finished high school, so I flew the nest and went on a year or so field work with a Buddhist social change movement, community development movement, called Sarvodaya, borrowed from Gandhi, but based on Buddhist teachings predominantly. And uh, so it was, instead of the uplift of all, which Gandhi meant by Salva Odaya, you're kind to all, you lift them up. They put Buddhist meaning into the same word and called it the awakening of all. Isn't that neat? Because that's what the Buddha did. And that's what they maintained everyone can do. And you wake up to at the village level, you wake up at the family level, you wake up in your work, and you wake up to your power. And as I heard them saying, and your power is not in this, uh, is, is not in Colombo, it's here. Colombo's their capital city, as you all certainly know. And uh, or if your power is not in the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund or the... Uh, donor nations from Europe. Your power is here in your own hands. You're waking up to that. Yeah. Isn't that great? So I had just come from years of completing my doctoral work in uh, Buddhism and I had you and I focused on uh, this doctrine of dependent core rising, the central you know the Buddha said she who sees Paticca Samuppada sees the Dharma. Whoever looks at the Dharma sees Paticca Samuppada, dependent co-arising, this co or conditioned co-arising, this emerging together, passing together. So uh, I had, in doing so, become convinced of the radical potential of the Buddhist path, that this could be really revolutionary in the forces that helped people experience uh, in their work, uh, in every aspect of their lives, but especially in wake in a, a world that was causing uh, political and economic systems, causing a lot of distress. So uh, I thought, someday, someday I want to give myself to that. We will find in the Buddha Dharma a liberation Buddhism where <clears throat> we will wake up and have our whole cultures wake up to uh, justice and common sense and ecological sanity and mutual respect. Then I got to Sri Lanka, so from my studies, 
And as I uh, met with the people in the um, headquarters, I was not at all surprised to hear them talking this. What I was surprised was to go out to the villages and hear an ordinary village workers and the people who were uh, organizers that they were talking like this and they were believing themselves and, and faith doing extraordinary things. So I was so bowled over by this and I remember the moment that I had this thought, it came as a shout and I was on a motorcycle. <laughs> I was actually, it was my motorcycle and I had learned to drive it at 50. <laughs> and I had just seen that there was truth in their advertising about Sarvodia. This is what they were doing in the villages and this is how they talked and that they would. And so I shouted, I've woken up in Indra's net. And so that's our theme tonight. And uh, the discoveries I made were uh, many and they're in a, a book that I, I wrote from that up on Sarvodia. I didn't bring it to, to offer you tonight because uh, this was before the 30 years of atrocious civil war that has racked Sri Lanka. And because uh, chauvinist Buddhist monks, nationalist Buddhist monks, had quite a role to play in it, uh, this was a, for everyone who uh, loves Sri Lanka and loves the Buddha Dharma and, and loves Sarvodhya was caught in this, there was this a sense of uh, wanted to be like people who had just heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and the liberation, coming liberation theology and coming and hearing uh, Jerry, well he's not around now, but hearing um, these uh, fundamentalist crazies. So there's that kind of, at any rate, I, I'm talking too long about that. Uh, I, woke up, I, I woke up then in Indra's net seeing how they use the Buddha Dharma as part of their uh, development training, how they use metta and also mudita, karuna, mudita, opeka, as actually as tools, as important as knowing uh, what forms to fill out to get a grant from the irrigation department, or how deep to dig, have the people dig a latrine. You learn that metta. You start your um, meetings with it. Uh, and the way they uh, understood who they were, and the way they understood what compassion was, and uh, courage. It's not just being softly, tenderly, compassionate, uh, and so sensitive, but having been strong enough to look right into the face of the suffering of our world and not be afraid of it. So that's my current definition of compassion. You like it? <laughs> to be courageous, to not afraid of the suffering of your world. Okay.
So now, what do we, now I, I fast forward to the last 15 years, and I think uh, it, it, I can see how uh, the sense of peril and out of controlness has grown, uh, a panic. And matching the panic on one side, I see them as two ditches on the way we're going toward a life-sustaining society. Uh, a ditch on one side is shut down. It's too much for me. I can't face it. And uh, so that's just that we're a shutdown culture in many ways. And that's one ditch. And the other is very closely related is panic, paralysis and panic because things seem, the militarism, the violence, the insanity of the wars, the torture, the legitimization of torture, the contamination, the fooling around with the uh, DNA of living forms, ways you can't undo, the injecting of chemicals into the groundwater, and we don't have much on this planet. You can't take it out again after that hydrofracking the playing around with nuclear power and weapons. We're, we're spending more now on nuclear weapons than at any time in the Cold War. So that there's a sense of, ah. And it is in that, this time that the um, jewel net of Indra comes forward to me in a, uh, with such uh, evocative, and revelatory power of, hey, honey, just look at this structure of reality. And it meant so much that in this new phase that I asked a friend of mine involved in nuclear work, abolition of nuclear weapons, to, and she's a musician, and another friend who is in the military, and to make us set it to music. Set what to music? How can you set an image of star, of, of jewels? Well, there is in the literature of that time a beautiful uh, set of instructions for, and it's called the Ten Enterings of the Bodhisattva. So the bodhisattva, that's you or me, when we have a caring for the world and an intention to serve life on earth. And then that intention sharpens your eyes and the Dharma then, if you let it, can reveal to you the uh, intricate interplay of all that is, right where you are. You don't have to ascend to heaven or go anywhere else. No, but just right here. You can turn this very moment into heaven and, and into a sense of uh, strong, sustaining participation. So these 10 enterings set to music, and I'm going to play them for you. And uh, I want you to just listen. What you will hear in various modes is that there is a juxtaposition 
of uh, the part and the whole, the small and the large, and that the bodhisattva can go into any small one person and see the whole world. The bodhisattva can go, I think, enter one hair and come out in all the universes. The bodhisattva can go into one moment and come out in all three times, past, present, or can enter all infinite times and come out in the present moment. It's, so it really helps set you free from the linearity that you start here and go to another place. It's like, it's like a pulsing of characteristics of part and whole. Once you begin to try to allow yourself to imagine that the whole of everything, that wholeness, is in you, you come out of that in every cell of your body. So that relates you to everything else, every tree, every plant, every kernel of corn, every baby that's born, everyone who's passing now. This, and yet each one is distinct. Okay, so can we play it? The singer is my friend Kathleen Sullivan. When a bodhisattva attains the ten wisdoms, she can then perform the ten universal entries. What are they? To bring all the universes into one hair and one hair into all the universes to bring all sentient beings' bodies into one body and one body into all sentient beings' bodies to bring inconceivable kalpas into one moment and one moment into inconceivable kalpas to bring all the Buddha's dharmas into one dharma and one dharma into all the Buddha's dharmas to bring an inconceivable number of places into one place and one place into an inconceivable number of places to bring an inconceivable number of organs into one organ. 
with that vision, you can get it that one child near Fukushima with cancer, with radiation in their body, it's all our children, or it's all of us. With that understanding, you can see the tides of refugees fleeing Eritrea and Syria, standing at the, on the borders in Europe, seeking a place where they don't have to live in terror and want, having uprooted themselves from their own beloved culture and know that we're not separate from them, that we can live with that communion with them inside us and let that feed our hearts and minds. I think that that understanding of our relationship around the world with all beings and through all space and time, I see it influencing so many people. I see it in Pope Francis. I see it in uh, the doctors of Médecins Sans Frontières who were just uh, bombed um, in, in Kundu. I said to uh, Kathleen when I handed her these, written out these 10 entries, I said, there's one that makes no sense to me, so you can leave it out. And it's the one, I don't know whether you caught it, but it says, uh, uh, there is, uh, you can enter all organs and come out in one non-organ, and one non-organ and all organs. That doesn't make any sense to me. And she said, oh, that's the most important one of all. You see, she's working in uh, nuclear abolition. And she says, like, that's the plutonium. We have so spread the contamination of a bunch of things that there are uh, non-organic things in our bodies. Yeah. So uh, let me, I've made a list here uh, of things I want that my discoveries. In this last period of time, particularly, when things are so heartbreaking, when things are so dicey, when it's so easy to fall into either a paralysis or panic. The first is, it helps me face both beauty and terror. I couple that those two together, because that's the reach of what it can open our heart minds to, enhancing our perception of the exquisite, the wondrous, the radiance, and at the same time, the appalling, the atrocious, the uh, revulsive, the, the brutality, uh, the young people planning together to do 
mass shootings at their schools. Some are local, you know, solo crazies, but this. And uh, I've just come from a wonderful weekend of uh, the work I do, uh, work that reconnects, uh, where it was based all on the poetry of Rilke, with which I'm somewhat besotted. <laughs> and, and having brought out three books of translations of Rilke with my co-translator, Anita Barrows, uh, hasn't um, diminished my passion in it at all. And those two a feature in, there's a poem, the one that's the most set to music of all of the requests in the Book of Hours, which was our first book, where uh, the sacred, the earth is sending out uh, the uh, bodhisattva, or each of us, saying these words, you sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing, embody me, flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. So let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. And your capacity to open to one increases your capacity to discern and hold the other. And it, it relates to the teachings I find uh, in the journey I've made and in the Buddha Dharma. It's right there in the first noble truth in the four, and in the four noble truths. Dukkha suffering is. Don't be afraid of it. We, in our culture, we tend to be afraid of the suffering, and so we don't want to even look at it. And we drug ourselves silly to keep from feeling it. So in this period of this, my second round with the, with the Net of Indra, I see that this, uh, the beauty and the terror, I, I'm learning to see that the insanity and destructiveness is not just some uh, invasion of demented people, or, uh, but that, that those are fit perfectly with what the Buddha was teaching about the causes of suffering, the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. And that in our time, they've reached such uh, overweening, institutionalized, organized forms whole other systemic level of greed, hatred, and delusion. The greed in the uh, consumer economy. The hatred embodied in our need for a huge military. And by latest count, our military is spending more than the next nine nations 
uh, in, uh, with big, big <laughs> military combined. That were just, and, and that's the solution to everything. And then, what's the institutionalized form of delusion? Media, maybe. Infotainment, maybe. And so we have to be a very a discerning of that and at the same time so patient with ourselves and each other. And not be afraid of it. Indeed, finding that uh, when you can see the causes and see that the root of your feeling of distress when you see what's happening to our prison system, the thousands put into conf solitary confinement, the use of prisoners to uh, produce goods, so we don't need to send for, you know, manufacturing overseas, get it done in the prisons for much less. New forms of slavery, so much that just, oh, but we have to take it in, says, and we can take it in, says the Jew on Netavindra, says the, and the Buddha that it conveys, the Dharma conveys. And in the discovering is that the pain that we feel is not, does not come from uh, our craziness or from some neurosis. Let's not pathologize our pain for the world. It comes from caring. And so you don't, I don't want you ever to be embarrassed or reluctant to rage or weep for what is happening to your brothers and sisters and those who aren't even born yet in generations to come, and to our brother and sister species. And that pain for the world and your love for the world are like two sides of the same coin. And you can let that, instead of pathologizing and running from the pain, or popping pills or taking a drink, though I have certainly been known to do that. Uh, <laughs> let's not knock it all. <laughs> Is that uh, we can sort of, uh, it helps us uh, be, realize our solidarity and realize that even to take in what's happening to our world, we need each other, as well as in the response, as Deborah said, of our collaborative action. So the promise is great for us to realize in this time, finally, really get it, that we belong to each other. And of course, there will be those who will want to, you know, blame our woes on this group or that group or those migrants coming in here. There'll be those, but more and more are there for you to link hearts with.
This is the time for that. And you have it. You have that instinct. You don't look at your here. You know you don't want to do it alone. This is not the time for the Pratyeka Buddha. That's the solitary do-it-yourself Buddha. But <laughs> this is the time for realizing how, our, how deeply we belong to each other. So the second discovery is then how vast that self is. We're coming out of five centuries and more of increasing focus and forming of the uh, isolated individual, the hyper-individualism, with its need to get its place in the sun and to fight for everything and to compete with all. Oh boy, we've been cultivated in that by a culture that exceeds in its so many skills. We have so much to decondition ourselves from. And that's why it's so great that you're here and practice. Because it's not enough to say, oh yes, I get it, we're all one. I get it, we're all connected. That's not, that's not going to be enough. That's just an intellectual affirmation. But you're here ready to look, go right down into the engine room of consciousness, watching the breath, watching your thoughts, watching the feelings, and then coming together, coming together, coming together, and feeling in the very breathing that you do that you're not doing that breathing. But Earth, the universe is breathing you, just as it's breathing the person on either side of you and everyone in this room. And even in that silent breathing, you can feel that solidarity. You get it? Yes. <laughs> so that awareness of uh, that awareness brings forth the bodhisattva in you, which I define, I know that's, uh, but it's used quite a bit here, isn't it? And uh, the bodhisattva is the one who knows that there is no private salvation. And actually, when you get down to think of it, would you want it? Would you want a private salvation? Okay. I'll pick one. You can go to heaven now. Will you want to leave us? No. Yeah. So that's, there's no private salvation. We're going to wake up together this time. And we're doing it. And, that, and, and a telltale feature of that is and a term I've loved so much, bodhicitta. That's the intention in you, the hankering in you to act for and live for the sake of life on earth. That that matters to you. That it matters to you that life continue here on this beautiful blue-green earth and this soil and this sun and moon that's been put in our hands. And that calls out this intention. And that's the most important thing you have. It's the most important and beautiful thing. 
It's like they say, you know, if they, my teachers say it's like a flame in your heart. And you just see that and you, start, you want to be careful it doesn't get blown out. So, uh, so it's not, don't ever mistake, get it confused with thinking that that is being sure everything's going to be hunky-dory. But it's re- rejoicing in the fact that you can uh, devote yourself or take a step toward the relishing of life on earth. So the self is, is something that becomes so big. And in the work that I have been doing over the last 35-some years, um, we discover that not being being told that, but by what we, how we interact and what we speak. Giving role playing is one. Like the Council of All Beings. Anybody done the Council of All Beings here? Add away. So as you speak for another life form, stepping aside from that tight identification with the human into that more ancient form, they're all more ancient than us. We're the last ones on the block. And you feel an enlargement of the life that passes through you. You're richer for it. And we speak for the ancestors, and we speak for those of future generations. And it's very easy to do that. If he has the most natural thing in the world, and you realize that the life within you is far vaster than the social construct that bears your name and your uh, passport and your job for your profession or anything attended to this particular phase of your, you know, this part of your life, which is from birth to death. (laughs) Yeah. The jewel net of Indra opens us to... uh, vast periods of time because it extends through time as well as space. And we can find the future ones as well as the ancient ones almost circling around us like a cloud of witnesses. They're not, the past is not dead and gone. The future is not just an abstraction. But the very fact that our karma in this time, the acts that we're doing have consequences for as long as time will exist through hydrofracking, through nuclear contamination, and through genetic modification. That brings, that means the future ones are right smack in the moment of our decision making. So we escape from Linear, we can step out of linear time and find the very uh, interbeing of past, present, and future. This is exceedingly, it bestows uh, a sense of tremendous buoyancy. 
a sense of solidarity with all beings. And you take a pretty incredible discovery that once you uh, hang out with the future beings and, the, and thinking about them, um, praying for them, to them, letting them inspire you, that uh, your context of your life widens. It goes before your birth and after your death. And you know what happens then? You get freed from being dependent on seeing the results of your own actions. Now that's a big deal. I mean, that's what this held up as enlightenment in the Bhagavad Gita and in Gandhi and others. But I always thought, oh, that's beyond me. Oh, I could. Because I do care about the results of my actions. But I know that I can't be dependent on them because a lot of what I do won't be evident for until I'm dead and gone. That's so liberating. I discover in the jewel net of Indra that there is a wonderful tolerance there for uncertainty. Which is going to happen? First, the great turning to a life-sustaining society or the great unraveling where things fall apart and systems unravel and lose coherence and the future looks then dimmer and dimmer for complex life forms, complex enough to hold consciousness, self-reflexive consciousness. So that's scary, the destruction. It's exciting, the great turning. We can do it. And they're both happening at the same time. And the jewel net of Indra with all the sparks and going out to all beings said, that's where I belong. And I can't know how this drama is going to turn out, but I give myself to it. And that breeds a sense of trust in the vitality, a trust that Rilke puts at the end of his book of hours. And he, where he says, I thank you deep power, earth power, the reciprocal power of the universe. I thank you that this power works me ever more lightly in ways I can't make out. The day's labor grows simple now and like a holy face held in my dark hands. And you're suddenly relieved from having to mastermind everything. To step back and receive the gifts from the other beings, that the gifts from life itself, from the web of life itself, and let that flow through you. Life is so much bigger than what we can plan.
So I thank you, great Dharma, for ways that inviting us to understand the mysteries to which you point, the mysteries that keep appearing to us and to be ready for us to be ready for them, of what can happen when we interact, when we speak our truth, when we take in the suffering and behold the beauty. They go hand in hand. And at this time of climate chaos and war making, it's all, all so intricately interwoven. The climate chaos that's facing us is the collective expression. This we see, whether it's in Black Lives Matter or the fast food movement or the uh, peace voices in the wilderness, just listening to Kathy Kelly back from the war for peace in Afghanistan. All of that's happening in our cities. It's all part of our climate change. Climate change is not, or chaos, is not something you say, I'll give up working in the battered women's shelter, or I'll give up saving marine mammals and, and fight against climate change. They are climate change. They are climate change's reflection of our massive idiocy and our need to, to uh, me first for the, the three f sources of suffering. And so we know what to do. We know perfectly well what to do. We know to love our world. We learn to receive its gifts. We learn to trust the heart. We learn to have a good time. Do we have time to listen one the last three says so hopefully the last three minutes and we'll hear it better from the start now, I think. When a bodhisattva attains the ten wisdoms, she can then perform the ten universal entries. What are they? To bring all the universes into one pair. Or one act. Into one dharma and one. 
into one place and one place into an inconceivable number of places to bring an inconceivable number of are coming here. The presence we've brought, the f centering we've experienced on the mystery of the life within us and our belonging to this beautiful world, this dewdrop world, all of that such a gift, and we offer it to the welfare of all beings. So we thank you all for coming, and we so deeply thank you, Joanna, for coming through all that traffic tonight and coming to Spirit Rock, and also just great gratitude for all that you have given and keep giving to our world. Thank you. Thank you.